Welcome, everyone, to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. It has just been such a freaking busy week, and uh, I mean, it doesn't stop. I feel like David and I are in charge of a uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, how do you say it, like, propaganda army right now so between bitcoin magazine bankless and pov crypto we pretty much work endlessly to just spread bitcoin ethereum and crypto knowledge out there so it's tiring work but you know someone's got to do it yeah we do it for you guys and and this episode is a particularly resonant with the pov brand the pov narrative uh we brought on long wang from the ren protocol the ren tm uh ren vm uh team Ren, Ren is about getting BTC on Ethereum, but also more about just getting assets from one chain onto asset onto a blockchain of, of another sort. So it's like an interoperability middleware. I really didn't know much about Ren VM going into this podcast. So this was really more of a chance for me to also learn how this, this whole system works. But because I was going into it relatively blindly, I asked the questions that I wanted to know, which I think are the questions that the listeners will want to know as well. Um, we covered, I'm pretty sure, like what would be the whole entire scope of the protocol. Uh, we talked about um, just how uh, the REN VM uh, multi-party computation works. Uh, we talked about the actual flow of Bitcoin onto Ethereum or, you know, asset onto other chain. Uh, we talked about the trust assumptions, talked about the, uh, the REN token, uh, the future of the REN protocol. Uh, Long did a fantastic job to summarizing everything in a really eloquent way. Um, so uh, tip of the hat to him for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think this is just a classic POV crypto show, uh, crossing the bridge literally uh, with the content as well as just um, the the sub or the 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 space in which Ren kind of fills. But also just, you know, David asking the type of questions that David asked and me digging into some of the more adversarial things that uh, maybe Long wouldn't get asked on some of the other podcasts out there. Um, I think it's important to like think about interoperability here because ultimately this is a new computing paradigm and we don't know what the best investments are going to be out there. But um, ultimately, th- this new sovereign distributed form of, uh, you know, interacting with people is going to keep growing in ways that we don't understand or um, could not have imagined before. So uh, I try to personally stay open minded to it. And it was really interesting to hear from Long how um, they're thinking about it. Let's just go ahead and get right into the episode with Long, the CTO of RenVM. All right, guys, we are here with Long Wang from Ren Protocol. This is one of the few protocols that are try- is trying to get Bitcoin onto Ethereum through some uh, mechanism that provides more uh, or less trust, more trustless uh, uh, assurances for getting your Bitcoin onto Ethereum. Uh, Long, you want to say hi? Hey guys, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm uh, the Chief Technology Officer at Rent. And, uh, we went live with that mainnet, I think, two months ago now. Fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah, so uh, it seems to be that Rent is the leader in tokenized Bitcoin on Ethereum, other than WBDC, but we don't really count that um, for obvious <laughs> reasons. Uh, and so we're going to dive in in this episode about... Wait, can <laughs> you not count it? Can you not count it? I feel like you have to kind of count it. Yeah. It is, it it is custodial. Yeah, yeah it does. Like 10, it does. 10x everything else. <laughs> yeah, it it does count. I I shouldn't say that. However, we are looking for a trustless crypto economic sci-fi future, uh, and so in sci-fi, uh, in, yeah, exactly. In, in a bankless future, if you will, uh, WBTC is not really the solution that we're looking for. So RenBTC offers that. TBTC is another one. Uh, I believe there's another one which I can't really uh, remember off the top of my head. But we're gonna uh, like dive into sorry. PBTC? Yeah, 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 that one. Um, so, But we're going to dive into the uh, REN protocol and how that works. Um, but first, Long, you want to give a little bit of a background as to how you came into the crypto space and then how you became working at uh, REN? Yeah, so um, I guess the movement into the crypto space was pretty natural for me. Um, my background was in distributed systems. Uh, I was kind of interested in, in Bitcoin in 2012, 2013. Um, but I, I didn't really dig into it too much then. I was still kind of finishing my studies. Um, and yeah, around the time that I, I did finish them, I think it was 2017. Uh, and I'd been working on a few projects with Ty, the CEO of Brent prior to that. Uh, and he wanted to get into the blockchain space. Um, he'd been working in a fund, 
uh, working with crypto. So he wanted to kind of build something and he noticed a few you know, gaps uh, in the ecosystem. And yeah, we put our heads together and we'd already been working together for many years. And so Ren was born from that. Um, and, and really blockchains and, and these kind of systems are, are just special forms of distributed systems. So it was quite a natural step for me to take. Fantastic. And tell us a little bit about the genesis of the company. Uh, how did that come about? So originally, um, Ty had noticed that there was kind of uh, sort of late 2017, early 2018, there was a lot of like movement in the decentralized finance space even then. Uh, it's really only boomed recently, but there was a lot of interest in trying to take all the traditional systems we see in the real world, uh, the real world and <laughs> turn them into decentralized versions of that. Um, and we noticed that you know, there was no such thing as a decentralized dark pool. Um, and ostensibly, it didn't even seem like that would be possible. You know, a dark pool is, is basically an exchange where the order book is hidden. And how would you hide an order book from the system that is actually processing those orders? It seemed kind of impossible. But we dug into it and we, we did a bit of research and we saw that actually it was possible. Um, and so we founded what was at that time called Republic Protocol, which was focused on, on building a decentralized dark pool. Um, we got that to mainnet, uh, I think, end of 2019, uh, mid 2019. And we really struggled to gain traction with it because dark pools only really work when you've got a lot of volume. Uh, and all of the volume at that time was in Bitcoin and USDT, neither of which were on Ethereum. Uh, I mean, I think USDT is, is these days, but, um, you know, even ETH volume was, was not nearly as comparable. So all of the large trades that people actually wanted to do with the platform, they couldn't because we didn't have interoperability. So we turned our focus to interoperability and we thought, you know, how do we solve this? And we realized that, the technology that we had built to make it possible to have a, a hidden order book that was run by nodes who themselves couldn't see the order book was actually the perfect technology to implement interoperability. And when we noticed that, we sort of realized this is a much bigger value proposition to the whole ecosystem to have decentralized interoperability than just to have a decentralized dark pool. So we, we pivoted to, to focusing solely on that interoperability layer. Okay, so I think we're going to need to figure out, uh, I'm going to need myself, uh, is what, what a dark pool is at a, at a deeper level, uh, how it's kind of constructed. If, if I recall correctly, a dark pool is not something unique to crypto. It's found in the outside world, right? And it's something that you guys are trying to bring to, to crypto. So, so let's start there. Like why, why do people want dark pools and what, what unique offering service product does, it, does a dark pool provide? So there's basically two reasons why you want one. The first is, uh, price discovery. So if you want to sell $10 million of Bitcoin, just revealing that intent to the market obviously shifts the price uh, against you. And likewise, if you want to buy $10 million uh, worth of Bitcoin, it has the, same, has the same effect. So ideally, you keep that hidden until the, um, it's already happened, it's already executed, and it's already you know, um, gone through and, and settled. Because then if the price does move on the market, it doesn't matter because you've already made the deal. Um, so, you know, this is why it's kind of exclusively for large volumes because it's not really relevant if you're doing small volumes because that doesn't shift the market too much. Uh, and the second is just to hide your intent. You know, if you're, um, if you're an active trader and you know, people are watching your addresses, uh, ideally they can't see what kind of actions you're taking before you've taken them at the very least. Ideally you, you can't see it at all, but I mean, uh, it's better if people can't predict what you're, what you're doing, what kind of moves you're making. Um, and so th these are huge in, in the traditional financial space. Uh, and, mostly that kind of niche has remained in the realm of, of OTC deals in, in crypto. And so how does this, you said it, um, you guys figured out that this protocol that you guys built for public the, for dark pools, it actually was a key uh, infrastructure already for building out some sort of interoperability. Can you uh, elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So uh, in order to build a dark pool, we had to build a, a system that could execute code where the nodes that were executing that code couldn't see the data. So if you think about Ethereum, you know, you have smart contracts and they're executing code over data, but that data is visible to those nodes. Um, now in the case of the dark pool, you want that data to be invisible um, because otherwise you're revealing the orders that are, that are in the pool, which is kind of the whole point. So we built what's called an MPC engine or a multi-party computation engine. And this has the capability to perform any kind of computation uh, in secret so that the nodes that are participating in that computation can't see the data that they're working with. They know what kind of computation they're doing, but they don't know what the information is. So they know they're running an order book, but they can't tell what orders are in it and what price points are, are there. Uh, and when you think about interoperability, this is actually the same kind of need. 
and instead of an order book, you take a private key and you chuck it inside that MPC engine. So now you have a private key that no one can see and no one can, can use unless a majority of the nodes are in consensus that it should be used. And so you can take Bitcoin, let's say, and you can dump it into this private key. And now that private key is owned by this system of nodes. None of them can see the private key, so they can't take off with their funds by themselves. Uh, and without consensus from the network, they can't successfully go through the computation. And this is, this is another important thing about MPC is that the computation can't progress unless a certain percentage of the system agrees that it should progress. Okay, so this is solving the, or begins to solve the trust issue, right? Where you, there's this mutual private key that everyone like is touching all at the same time, but no one can actually have a grip on it, right? Um, yeah, that's right. And, and so how does it actually work uh, Christian, unless, unless you want to hop in, I'm going to start to get into how Bitcoin actually becomes managed by this private key. Yeah, well, I mean, I was just going to make the observation. It sounds like uh, like the you know, what you've built for the dark pool is almost like a almost like a coordinated multisig, like with many keys involved. Um, yeah, that's that's ultimately what you can think of it like. It's although at a technical level, it, it looks very different. The mental model is the same. You can have a, a massive multi-signature with, with hundreds of participants, uh, but to the chain, it only looks like a single signature. So obviously, if you were trying to have, if you tried to have a multi-sig with with hundreds of signatures on, on Ethereum, the gas expense would be huge, uh, whereas a single signature is very cheap. Uh, and, and likewise, Bitcoin doesn't even support more than than twenty in theory. And I think in practice, no one minds transactions that use more than five. So you know, you're very limited uh, in in a literal multi-sig, but you can, you can use the multi-party computation to basically take a, a normal key and simulate uh, this multi-sig kind of process. Right, so it's like a L2 multi-sig, where it's a single signer on the Bitcoin L1, and then that private key is fractured on a secondary level. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool, cool. Um, so I guess, how, like, I, I guess the question is, is uh, you know, who can be a part of that architecture? Like how does someone participate and be a node in that and, and participate in, you know, giving computing resources to it? Sure. So uh, one, of, one of the key things about a multi-party computation is you need distinct individual parties. So you need people to create identities. And so to prevent someone just spamming a whole bunch of identities, you need some kind of uh, staking model in play. So in the REN VM uh, protocol, you have these REN bonds, which is 100,000 REN tokens. I think that's about 16,000 US at the moment. Um, and that stake is your right to have an identity in the network. And, and it comes in lots. So if, if you don't have exactly 100K, then you can't create an identity. So if you have 150, you can't create one and a half identities. You can create one. And if you have 50, you can't create anything. So, sorry, what was the US dollar value for uh, being able to have an identity in this new system? So it's, it's 100,000 Ren. Um, right. So at the moment, that's 16,000 US. $16,000. Okay. So that's like kind of the equivalent of like a staking node in ETH2, but for what you guys have, right? Like that's yeah. The, yeah. The, the bond for participating in the system. And so you guys uh, um, decentralize the system via the token, right? The token's tradable on the secondary market. There's permissionless entry and exit out of this, of the Ren signing system by purchasing or selling and, the token. So I have, a, I have a question though, and this is like yesterday we interviewed Ansel Linder and he kind of pushed back and he's like, these tokens, regardless, they act kind of like as money. If you're just trying to stop people from spamming and, you know, uh, uh, essentially, you know, maliciously attacking, you could have them staking ETH or something else that, you know, that is like greater money. I'm curious, like, why is it better to stake Ren, a token that you created? Like it would actually probably work better decentralizing the system if it staked, you know, just an outside asset. Yeah. So, I mean, there is, um, I think the token distribution is something worth thinking about. Um, the reason why REN makes sense, uh, well, there's a few reasons why it makes sense. One is that RenVM is not just about Bitcoin on Ethereum. It's about any asset on any other chain. So it would be odd to have, you know, everything bonded in Ethereum on the Ethereum chain in order to transition Bitcoin to Polkadot because that's got nothing to do with Ethereum. Uh, the one system that is common to all of those uh, pairs is the RenVM system itself. So it makes sense to have its own uh, token that sits there on its own system. Uh, 
The second thing is that part of what we want to be able to do with the security model inside RenVM is make sure that the REN bond is as high as possible because this keeps the system in its most secure form. There's multiple layers of, of security we can think about. And the problem with using something like ETH is that you can't uh, correlate the value of the bond with the usage of the network. So it could be the case that, you know, RenVM's being used a bunch and it's generating, you know, lots of fees and all this kind of stuff, but that the bond inside the system is completely uncorrelated. Um, and so it, it crashes in price. Whereas if the only use of the token, and it is the case with Ren that the only use of the token is for bonding, then its price point is, is correlated to the amount of fees that the system is generating, which is correlated to the usage of the system. So as the system is used and needs to generate more capacity, uh, it's generating more fees and this is generating uh, yield for, for rent holders and, and so the, the price of, of rent goes up. And you can't make the same assumptions if you use a different token. And that's just because ETH is used in so many different places. So what actually is REN? It's not a blockchain, but it is its own distributed system, right? So under the hood, it actually, <laughs> we stray away from calling it a blockchain because it creates, I think, the wrong mental model. Um, RenVM does run its own blockchain based on, um, it's an implementation we call Hyperdrive, which is just a slightly modified version of the 10-minute consensus algorithm. And that's how it coordinates itself. Right. So the actual it's a, execution engine is nothing like a, a normal blockchain. Right, right, right. Yeah. So it is its own self-sovereign system, right? It doesn't that's care about Ethereum. It doesn't care about Bitcoin. It doesn't care about, you know, whatever. It just cares that there are these things that exist that they can, that Ren can uh, bridge, right? So it's yeah, mo- this, right. this very like nebulous uh, middleware between all the blockchains. Yeah, that, that's it's that's pretty cool. It's kind of its own, maybe like a, a layer zero. So it kind of right. sits underneath all of the layer ones. It seems like a very simple version of Cosmos, which you just said it's a, like a, a fork off the Tendermint protocol, which is what Cosmos is run off. Cosmos has a little bit of extra bells and whistles with like application specific blockchains, but yeah, it, it seems just like very a, a very trimmed down, simplified Cosmos. Is that a pretty fair way to, to describe it? Yeah, it's not a bad mental model. Um, obviously, the way that Cosmos does interoperability is as it has the IBC protocol. Um, but, you know, obviously, Bitcoin doesn't speak the IBC protocol. Ethereum doesn't speak the IBC protocol. Polkadot doesn't speak the IBC protocol. So you know, none, it doesn't really work in, in that sense. Uh, what RenVM does is it kind of, instead of asking other chains to speak its protocol, it just comes to them and speaks their protocol. And so it can kind of turn other layer ones into spokes of its own system. So, you know, from RenVM's perspective, Ethereum is just a, a side chain. Uh, and Bitcoin is also just a side chain from the way that it sort of models these chains. That is really cool. That is really cool. You're muted, Christian. I wanted to dig into how someone participates in, in the RenVM chain, right? Like what kind of hardware do they need to have? Like obviously they need to have the tokens to stake. Um, like how does the token work? Is it a native token or is it an Ethereum token? Can you get into those details? So it's currently sitting on an, uh, as an ERC-20 on Ethereum, um, and this is kind of a legacy of um, our Republic protocol days. Uh, and that may change in the future, but uh, we don't have any specific about that at the moment. The hardware that someone needs to run in order to run a validator, we try to keep as slim as possible. So uh, you do have to run hardware um, because you obviously have to contribute computing power to, to run this, this multi-party compute network, um, but it's very cheap. It's like a, I think it's ten dollars a month, approximately. Um, I think, you, and you can get that down to like three dollars if you, you know, buy a, a reserve. Um, you can get like a seventy percent discount. So yeah, it, it's quite cheap to run. But that's just, this is assuming like uh, you're 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 paying for cloud resources. Like you're not owning yeah. any of this hardware, that kind of stuff. That's right. We, we do recommend cloud resources, and we support a whole variety of different clouds to try and keep it as decentralized as possible. Um, the, the reason that we do that is that it's required that you keep your node online and connected to the network as much, as much as possible. So you need to have a reasonable uptime. And for people who are highly technical, uh, that's not hard to do at home. But for people who are not highly technical, that can be a very difficult task to achieve. And so we want to be able to, you know, we, we want the network to be as distributed as possible. And we don't want to reserve this for people who are just highly technical to be able to run, run these systems. So we have a, a tool called the, the node CLI which will you know, deploy a secure setup for you on, in a random place in the world uh, using whatever VPS provider that, that you choose. 
Uh, and if you are technically inclined, you can set it up yourself. Yeah, I mean, we, we've interviewed uh, the guys from Bison Trail and the Bison Trails, and like the the role of like you know self hosted computing versus like cryptographically insured and distributed cloud computing. Like, I'm sure there's a place for all of it, and I'm just I'm just kind of curious and interested to see how um, different groups and orgs you know kind of like wrestle with. Um, you know, those realities. Yeah, I mean, it's been, um, it has certainly been a topic <laughs> in our community. Um, the way that we're trying to solve it is by supporting as many different people as providers as we can. Um, this is also, uh, I guess, a practical thing for our team. Um, if everyone's trying to set a machine up on their sort of local machine at home, uh, we have no idea what those environments look like. So it's very difficult for us to provide support for people. Whereas if you are deploying into a VPS system, we can, you know, as, as experts in this space, make sure that that deployment is secure, that it's not going to be easily compromised uh, and that, you know, it's, um, it's in an environment that we're familiar with. And so that if you do have any issues, then we, can, we can step in and actually provide that other support. But there are, there are a few members of our community who, who are technical enough to deploy these online systems. And we have seen uh, community members go ahead and actually, actually do this. What is Sorry, can I, one more thing. Would it be fair to say that REN is only as uh, distributed or decentralized, or REN BTC is only as decentralized as the overall REN network? Uh, it depends what you mean by, I mean, yeah, of course, given that REN BTC is, is controlled by the REN network, then yes, you, you're necessarily only as decentralized as your, your least decentralized component. How, like, if you were to be as fair as possible, how decentralized do you feel like it is right now and where, where do you want it to be? I think we're pretty good. We have about a thousand nodes. Um, we've got a cool little map that shows up where they are in the world uh, and they're, they're distributed in all sorts of places. So uh, shy of a VPS provider actually stepping in and mandating a shutdown of these machines, um, there's not really much that could go and take the network down. So even if an entire region of the world goes offline, uh, that's, there's no region in the world that you could pick that would take enough nodes offline to take that off. Um, it is favored more towards DigitalOcean than I would like. Uh, a lot of our community members pick DigitalOcean because it's the easiest option. Um, and, you know, obviously we don't want everyone to be using DigitalOcean because that, that does make it very difficult. Um, but we do have migration um, capabilities. So if, you know, AWS or, or DigitalOcean does come out tomorrow and say, right, we're not super fans of this whole RenVM thing, so we're shutting down these nodes, you can kind of run a command and clone your setup and deploy it to a different uh, place on a, on a different VPS provider. So Ren, the token Ren is an ERC-20 token on Ethereum. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that that's just because that's what the Ren protocol enabled it to be. So how did the Ren token come about? And does it actually have like a home, like a home base? Or, or how does that even work? So in principle, it can live on any system that we, we deem as what's called a host chain. So a system that can host alternate assets. So obviously, RenVM supports Bitcoin, but we don't consider Bitcoin a host chain because it doesn't really make sense to move an asset to Bitcoin. Uh, you know, the best you could do is Omni, but that's, you know, I don't know why you would do that. Um, so, so once we support other chains, um, so we're about to pull in uh, Substrate, specifically Akala, you'll be able to move the Ren token there as well. And, and eventually we want to turn RenVM into its own smart contract platform as well. So that instead of having a smart contract that's solely on Ethereum and then a different smart contract that's solely on you know, Substrate and then trying to communicate across that bridge, you can just take that and put it directly onto RenVM itself. And then you'll be able to put Ren onto uh, the RenVM chain directly. Okay, we're going to get into the topic of the RenVM chain because uh, I, I definitely want to dive into that. But I actually want to go through the process of the user story for getting Bitcoin onto Ethereum via Ren. Like, how does that yep. work? And then what's also going on in the background? Can you walk us through that? Sure. So the user flow is very dependent on the application. So the application has kind of full control of that, the flow that it wants. This is very similar to an Ethereum DAP. Um, there's no like standard way to, to do something. But there is obviously commonality between all these um, things. So at, at the end of the day, what you're going to be shown is you're going to be shown a Bitcoin address which is a deposit address. And so this is the place that you send your Bitcoin. And once you send it there, the respective amount of RenBTC will appear uh, on Ethereum uh, and 
you know, get deposited into whatever application it is that you're interacting with. So one of the cool things about Rendium is that this Bitcoin address is unique to every single user and every single transfer. The reason for that is it's actually uh, bound to the specific thing that you want to do with that RenBTC when it's on Ethereum. So you don't just sort of like take Bitcoin and then wrap it into RenBTC and then take that RenBTC and use it as an ERC20. You can actually interact directly with uh, Ethereum smart contracts using Bitcoin transactions. So basically what happens is you'll come to this application, it will show you, you know, the various options that the application might have. Let's say you're trying to provide liquidity to you know, the DEX as, as a liquidity provider. It might say, okay, how much do you want to provide? How much do you want to provide the counter asset? You know, what are the parameters of, of your liquidity providing? And then you'd put all those in and it would show you a Bitcoin address. And that Bitcoin address would be committing to all of that information that you just put in. And then you send your Bitcoin to that address and then RenVM picks everything up from there. What it does is it you know, produces a signature that allows you to mint the RenVTC, but only if you're going to follow through with the intent that you originally described. And this prevents any kind of manipulation so you can hand it off to third parties. Uh, and the ability to hand it off to third parties is a really nice thing to be able to do because then you can literally just deposit your Bitcoin and then like shut your computer down and walk away and know that it's all just going to happen in the background for you. You don't need gas, you don't need this kind of stuff. This creates a really nice user flow. Um, so from the user's perspective, you can end up in a situation where you're saying, these are the parameters of the liquidity that I want to provide to this particular DEX. You get given a Bitcoin address, you deposit your Bitcoin into that address, and then it will appear in that DEX as BTC for you. And you can go in the reverse direction. So you can say, I want to now withdraw my liquidity to this Bitcoin address, which is you know, under my, my control, and you execute the Ethereum transaction and it will just appear in, in that address once those events have been processed and all the necessary confirmations have happened. Beautiful. So, I, yeah, I really like how uh, it's not like going into a different token and, you know, switching over to the Ethereum protocol and sending to an ETH address. I like that it's it's like, you know, interoperable with the, uh, the format that you are kind of starting with. Um, I guess my question is, is like, so does that mean that any... DAP that wants to integrate REN BTC needs to like work directly with you guys or work directly with your protocol in order to give that functionality. It's not just like turnkey, um, you know, Bitcoin to Ethereum, anything like it has to be kind of one-to-one. Like, what does that look like? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously because REN BTC is just an ERC20, uh, you can just adopt the ERC20. Um, and we do have an application that does just allow you to like the the intent that you bind to your minting of RenBTC is literally just send it to the Ethereum address, um, and that allows you to just go back and forth between RenBTC and BTC, however you like. Uh, and this just makes it this makes it easier for this initial adoption period where people want to you know put in RenBTC into their platform, but they don't want to um, waste time up front or, or commit that, those resources right now into building what we call a native integration, which is this sort of user flow. Um, but for those experiences, we we have you know, we have a set of JavaScript libraries. One of the ones that we have is called called the Gateway JS, and this is just kind of like it's like a MetaMask pop up that does all of this for you. So you can just say this is it's kind of like Web three. You'd say this is the Ethereum smart contract that I want to call, and you say go, and it just pops up the Bitcoin window. It does all of the Bitcoin stuff that needs to be done, and then uh, submits the Ethereum transaction for you. So to a, a native Ethereum developer, it's not dissimilar to. Uh, using a Web3 application. And you don't really have to worry about any of this Bitcoin kind of stuff. Makes sense. So let's dive into uh, what you mentioned earlier with Rend's own native smart contracting system. That sounds like kind of like the pinnacle or capstone of, of what Rend is trying to be. Uh, a, is that a good representation? And also B, can you explain, uh, just further elaborate on, on that whole uh, development side of Rend? Yeah, I mean, so that, that's that's a really long-term goal for us. Um, it's probably not going to something be something that comes to fruition into the into the ecosystem for for a few years uh, yet. Um, but I guess the intuition uh, is reasonably obvious. So once you have the ability to move assets between different chains and, and call smart contracts when you do that, um, the goal then is to be as efficient about this as possible. So when you want to go from Bitcoin to Ethereum. One problem is that you have to pay the underlying Bitcoin fees because you obviously have to transfer the Bitcoin to RenVM and then RenVM has to take that Bitcoin into custody. So there are Bitcoin mining fees involved that are, that are unavoidable. Uh, and you also have to wait for six uh, or more confirmations. So obviously RenVM is not going to believe that it actually has this Bitcoin under custody until it's seen enough confirmation in the Bitcoin chain. And this can obviously take a really long time. 
Now, let's say you have your NBTC on Ethereum and you want to put it over into uh, a Kala because you want to take advantage of some features that are available there. Maybe it's ARB, maybe you want an AUSD, whatever it is. Ideally, you don't have to go back off Ethereum into Bitcoin and then from Bitcoin back to Kala because you're, you're just like tripling down on all of these fees. So one of the things that RenVM does allow you to do is go directly from Ethereum to Akala. So no Bitcoin actually moves to an online Bitcoin chain. Just, it's called a burning mint. So you immediately burn off Ethereum and, and remint it onto Akala. The next question is, can we make this even more efficient, right? What happens if I don't know where I want my, my RenBTC to be in? You know, I, I know that I want to take advantage of it on Akala or on Ethereum because I'm an arbitrageur and that's my, my jam. Um, I don't want to commit to that liquidity being in one place or the other. I just want to kind of be in a half state. I want RenVM to already have it and then under certain conditions deploy it to these different places. And so as soon as you start thinking about that, it becomes very obvious that you want a smart contract on RenVM itself. Um, and this is kind of like a, um, if you find that you've built an application on a particular platform, but you find that a lot of those interactions are coming cross chain, you can make those interactions more efficient by moving part of your application, all of your application directly into RenVM. Itself. And then instead of applications having to go through a double leg, they can just live directly in Ethereum. Uh, uh, so it's, it's just a way to reduce confirmation times, reduce gas, um, and yeah, just overall make the system more efficient. So where do you see like the multi-chain operability world going? Uh, kind of a thesis in this podcast is that it's pretty much Bitcoin and Ethereum and those network effects kind of dominate um, I have a heavy skepticism for blockchains as a distribution net, uh, or a distributed network system as a whole. Um, I feel like they have very kind of limited use cases. Um, I'm kind of curious, like, you know, what vision are you building towards and like, what are you seeing from these other communities that makes you think otherwise? So I think one of the, the things that guides a lot of the choices that we make uh, and certainly is, is I think what has left us with a, such a good UX when it comes to interoperability is that what we really want to do is provide, like, I, I think interoperability is actually a core part to adoption. You know, there's a lot of these different assets and, and it's inarguable that there's huge amounts of liquidity in these different chains. But if you look at the top 10 chains on coin market cap, none of them can talk to each other. Uh, and as a user or even, even as a developer, I think the reason these network effects dominate is that right now, if you want to build a DeFi application, it doesn't really matter if you want the you know, 100,000 transactions per second that XYZ chain can give you because there's no liquidity there or uh, there's, no, there's no users there. Uh, there's no stable coin there yet. There's no oracles there yet. So even if you had the best idea for a dope lending platform that needs more transactions per second than Ethereum can give you, you're kind of stuck with Ethereum anyway because you need the assets and you need the oracles and you need you know, all of the existing infrastructure. By being able to bring interoperability to the table, those network effects lessen and developers can start making choices based on their technical needs. So if you need something that is going to interact really tightly with DeFi, then sure, go to Ethereum. But if you need something that's got super high transaction volume and low gas fees, then maybe you, you pick a different chain, but that's not going to lock you off from the rest of the ecosystem like it did yesterday because you know, you've got this interoperability layer that you can leverage. So I think we're kind of building towards this. Um, I guess it's like... Sorry. Oh, you, you go, you go. Sorry, I, I thought you got distracted because me and Christian were pointing at each other. But if you want to finish your thought, finish your thought. <laughs> um, I, I guess we're kind of building towards this idea of choice. Right, where, where users and developers can use whatever assets or whatever chains they want. And it's not going to lock them out from the rest of the ecosystem. You know, like if you want to use DGB because you think it's the best asset under the sun, that's fine. You can still interact with Uniswap. You don't have to stick to the assets that are supported by Ethereum natively. And same with the developer. Yeah, so it sounds like, like Christian said, like this, the thesis of POV crypto is largely like Bitcoin, Ethereum, that's all there's going to be. But it actually sounds like REN is a polychain multi-coin uh, or yeah, a polychain world enabler, right? Like that is, it creates the uh, infrastructure for reducing the power of the network effects by allowing more liquidity, uh, no, more fluidity between chains, right? Is that, is that a fair uh, thought? Yeah, I think that's kind of our, our thesis here. Um, you know, it, I completely agree with you guys that right now, Bitcoin on Ethereum is like, that's, that's where it's at. Because if you had to pick the two biggest network effects, it's Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, and so they're the two that naturally make sense to combine. But as soon as you can break down those barriers, uh, I 
think there's a chance that we'll start seeing these assets supported elsewhere as well. So actually, I, I feel like that's that's completely right. And if anything, I, I maybe it allows other chain, like other block space to be commoditized. But if anything, it actually only enables uh, monetary network effects to just kind of dominate um, over multiple chains and not just, you know, on the native asset or in a centralized database. Yeah, I, I agree. So I think, you know, if ETH continues to dominate the world of being collateral, now it's actually possible to use ETH as collateral on Substrate. Uh, you know, on other chains, you can actually start thinking about using, um, you know, this all like ETH as collateral thing where it's getting locked up tons and this accrues value for it. Now becomes possible over multiple chains because now it can tap into to, uh, other DeFi places. And, and what we're really seeing from a lot of the projects that we're talking to is that they want to take advantage of the features of some other chains, but they want to access ETH assets. They want to access ETH. They want to access Bitcoin. So wait, so I, I don't mean to cut you off, uh, David. So I mean, I, I understand that this is gr- th- like this vision is great, and uh, I. I could see a world where, yeah, maybe Ren is like this glue that meshes this whole ecosystem together. But then, you know, the question is, is like, how secure is Ren? And is Ren like a, um, you know, this kind of black swan that can happen and could break the whole industry um, and and break all the infrastructure? Like, I, I guess we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but like, you know, what you're thinking there, like in a maximally successful world, like, do you feel comfortable with the current, um, like the current way that tokens have been distributed, uh, the current amount of people that are, you know, involved in the project and have a strong stake, like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I think, so one of the things that I guess we define as success as well, which is kind of important here, is that there's a really big focus on total value lock at the moment in, in various metrics. Um, that's not actually the right metric, I think, when it comes to interoperability. No matter how, like, Let's, let's assume the, the perfect interoperability system. So let's just assume that Renvium is, is incorruptible. It's just absolutely everything you want. Bitcoin on Ethereum is still less secure than Bitcoin on Bitcoin. Because now whatever security risk Bitcoin has, you're exposed to that, but you're also exposed to whatever security risk Ethereum has. Right? And, and there is some there. You know, it's, it's and low, Ren it's has. Low. Yeah, so but I'm saying even so if you assume some, some yeah, arbitrary okay, sure, protocol sure. That, that's yeah, perfectly yeah, secure, okay. it's always beneficial. It's always best to have the asset on its home chain. Right, that's, that's always going to be the most secure place because otherwise it's just compounding uh, risk. And so what we're trying to do with RenVM, uh, and I'll discuss very concretely you know, its security mechanisms, but one of the things we're trying to do is to keep that uh, possible and to keep that easy to do. And this is one of the reasons why we focus so clearly on this UX where you might uh, deposit Bitcoin into a, uh, an automated market maker, but when you withdraw that liquidity, it's coming straight back to Bitcoin. We want to really discourage people from just hanging around and holding Ren BTC is an ERC20 token. If you're not utilizing it and it's not generating yield for you, you're not, you're not putting it to work, keep it on the Bitcoin chain because that's where it belongs. So I think part of having a successful, this, this end vision, you know, where like Ren is the glue for, for the whole ecosystem, it's more a conduit. And we're already seeing Ren, Ren being used as a conduit in, in many ways. So people, uh, one, one of our biggest use cases at the moment is uh, this curve pool where we have BTC in a stable pool with WBTC, SBTC. Uh, I think that's it. Uh, but obviously, as, as more you know, Bitcoin on Ethereum projects come up, I'm, I'm sure they'll, they'll get added to that, that pool as well. Uh, and, and this works for us really nicely because RenVM is just the best user experience. People really want WBTC because it's tapped into MakerDAO, uh, but they can't get it. It's, it's really, really hard to actually go from Bitcoin to WBTC or vice versa. RenVM is the best way to do that. From the perspective of the smart contract platform, it doesn't actually matter, right? Because RenVM sits there, you can go from Bitcoin to RenBTC to RenBTC to WBTC to WBTC to make it out and boom, you have DAI. From the perspective of the user, they still get the experience that they want. They still get to deposit Bitcoin and on the other side, uh, get um, DAI in a single transaction. And from the perspective of developers, they still get this interoperability that they want. But RenVM doesn't have to keep these assets locked uh, in the system at all times it can have just a small float and facilitate a huge amount of volume so when we think about rendium security obviously the the most critical aspect of that and i think what you're getting at the question is what happens when rendium has a hundred billion dollars of assets under management how secure is it um 
And the goal is to basically not have a hundred billion dollars of assets under management, unless it, uh, the underlying network value is high enough to actually support that naturally. And to sort of try and discourage assets being away from home as much as possible. So this actually kind of fits into like my, my bank list thesis where, uh, like you said, like people want WBDC cause it's in MakerDAO, but if they wanted to get their Bitcoin turned into WBTC, they would have to email BitGo, right? With their name. And they would probably have to do some sort of KYC probably. And then yeah, so and, there's, there's a, there's a multi-hierarchy of WBTC where only merchants can mint or burn WBTC mm-hmm. and they have to be KYC with BitGo. And then part of that agreement is that the merchant has to do KYC on all of the users that right. they do that process with. Right. Which is not, not the sci-fi crypto economic future that we want, right? We want to be able to permissionlessly without having to ask anyone permission to get your assets to do the things that you want to do. Uh, and so uh, it, and this KYC always happens at the edges, right? So, you know, getting your Bitcoin from Bitcoin onto Ethereum is using the edges of these ecosystems and you're using a centralized business to connect the edges. Whereas Ren, I mean, I guess Ren puts a protocol in the middle. And so you have, you go from protocol to protocol to protocol without ever having to escape the edges of this, of this new web three paradigm. And you can get uh, your assets permissionlessly into the ecosystem and out of the ecosystem. And so when it comes to like reducing the uh, power of like the state and reducing the influence of KYC, I'm all for it. I think it's fantastic. I think one of the things that's really important to me in, in that, idea though is choice um, one of the things that I, I like about crypto is that it gives me the choice i can keep my assets on binance if i think binance is going to do a better job of keeping its assets secure and in some sense it does right it's insured it's insured at a level that i can't insure myself personally in any practical way uh, as far as bitcoin goes if you're a huge institution and you want to move bitcoin out of DeFi, you kind of want someone to sue if something goes wrong right you want some reclamation of that and you can enshrine that into a protocol as much as as, as possible but at the end of the day, maybe your regulatory system as an institution just doesn't allow you to make those moves. Uh, and I mean, you could imagine this is the case because let's say someone starts washing Bitcoin through them. You know, we can't stop them doing that. But if you start interacting with the same system as an institution, maybe that looks really bad for you. So you don't want to do that. The point is choice. And I think it's really important that we see a lot of different Bitcoin on Ethereum models because that gives users the ability to pick the one that they want. You know, maybe people want SBTC because it's purely a synthetic and they like the synthetic model. Maybe they want, you know, WBTC because they want that central entity. They actually trust BitGo more than they trust you know, RenVM security. More, and that's fine. So they just want to bounce through RenVM as temporarily as possible to get, I mean, in, in the course of a single transaction, just to get um, into WBTC in a more convenient and fluid way. Or maybe they, they're happy with the WBTC system. I'll just use it directly. I think last question, and we'll wrap it up. Uh, last question is, of course, why does the token have value? What's the what's the value uh, capture mechanism of the REN token? Also, sorry, also talk market. about the distribution a little bit too. Oh, yeah, sure. So anytime that assets move from one chain to another, there's a fee that the RenVM network takes, and that gets distributed to the people that are running the network. So your right to work in the network is your access to that fee. So I think to date, we've generated uh, almost... $45,000 US in fees uh, for the networks that are running, uh, which, which are quite still about a, a 3% yield at the moment, um, if, if you assume sort of no change in, in volume or growth of, of the platform in any way. As far as distribution goes, um, Wait, but, and, and sorry, how is that fee de- determined? Who determines that fee? That's governed by the system. So obviously the system you know, will try and reach an equilibrium where they can maximize their fees by either having fees that are... You know, preferring lower fees and higher volumes or lower volumes and higher fees. Uh, that's going to be something that I guess the market decides on over time. So like um, you need to vote on it with your tokens? Yeah. yeah. So the dark nodes, which is what we call the machines that power the system, because they're the ones powering the multi-party computation, they basically, they're the miners of, of our ecosystem. So essentially they get to govern and they say, well, it's all well and good if you want to give us a 10-bit fee, but we don't care about 10-bit fees, so we're not going to process that transaction. So we right. have to offer them whatever it is that they're asking for. So, so kind of um, like how um, Ethereum nodes or Ethereum miners can vote the block size up or down. Uh, RenVM nodes can vote the fee up or down to what they deem appropriate. Yeah, that's right. And actually what, what they do is they, they vote in different models. So you, you model the fee as opposed to just saying it's a static you know, 10 bits 
um, you, you can vote in a model. And that model might be, yeah, it's static. It's just a, it's a line. <laughs> uh, or you could say that, you know, the meeting fee increases uh, in accordance with an exponential curve with relation to how much volume is locked inside the system. This has a cool effect of not only discouraging too much volume being locked in the system, because as more volume accrues, it becomes more and more expensive to move more volume in. But you can do the opposite and say the burning fee then goes down uh, as the total value goes up. And so you can encourage, you use these economic levers to, to encourage flow through the system in the way that you need it. Um, but what's cool about that is obviously as the fees go up, uh, obviously the income is, is going up as well. So if, if the ecosystem really, really wants my PTC on Ethereum, despite that that fee is, is increasing exponentially, then the income of, of the system is increasing exponentially. So the, secure, the, the underlying value is, is occurring uh, exponentially as well. And the network inherently becomes more secure because of that. Genius. As far as Genius. distribution goes, um, it's, it's really hard to determine. Uh, that's about all I can say on that because we, we did our ICO in early 2018, February. So it's been on the open market since then. Um, the you know major... Uh, holders that we're aware of um, there. Uh, I probably shouldn't point them out by name. I don't know if that's <laughs> violating their privacy. Um, they're, you know, they're big investors and funds in this space that are, that are fairly well trusted amongst different um, projects. And many of them are actually contributing directly to this right now um, and, and will become more known and partake in sort of a not anonymous participation in the network that people can govern how much they want those people to actually be involved. And like upgrades to the protocol that's also done through kind of token governance. So that's, we're planning on signaling that through token governance, but the problem with signaling um, is that you don't necessarily have to follow through. But the idea is that um, similarly to any other network, only a, only a sufficient portion of the network actually has to adhere to an upgrade and they become the upgrade and everyone else is considered uh, delinquent if they don't upgrade with, uh, in time. This was fascinating. Long, thank you so much for coming on POV Crypto and explaining it. Uh, that is a very, uh, there's a lot of different moving parts to the REM protocol, but they all cohere pretty well. And also you do a fantastic job explaining it. So you're also a good ambassador to, to REM as well. So uh, thanks for coming on and sharing your thoughts. Yeah, thanks for having me guys. It's awesome to be able to discuss this kind of stuff in depth. Yeah, and uh, Long, why don't you uh, plug where people can find you and shout to who you want to hear from? Uh, the best place to find me is on Twitter, uh, BZLWANG, um, or you can come join our community on Telegram. Um, I think the thing we'd lo love to hear from at the moment is, is users, um, how you find the system. Um, if you haven't used it, what's holding you back? Uh, and, and developers as well. So we kind of lump those guys into the same pool for us. So if you're a developer or you're a retail user, you have or haven't tried RenBTC, tell us how it went or, or why it didn't go. Mm -hmm. Bitcoiners, get your Bitcoin on Ethereum via Ren. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, stop over. Over. <laughs> yeah, just chase some yield. <laughs> All right, thanks long. Thanks, guys. Thanks long. Cheers. All right, wait, hey, let's let's plug the show. Uh, you guys can find the show at oh, POV yeah. CryptoPod. Uh, make sure to give us five star reviews. Make sure to follow me and David, me at CK underscore Snarks, David. You can follow me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Bankless. All right, now we're done. <laughs> Do you believe? Do you believe? Will you